1: Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Dynamic Manufacturing. Since 1955, Dynamic Manufacturing has a relentless commitment to quality and customer service when it comes to your automotive needs. They've been named General Motors Supplier of the Year 22 times. And whether it's remanufacturing, machining, electrification, motorsports, and much more, there's nothing Dynamic Manufacturing can't do. Find them on the web at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. And by Raul Jewelers, who offer the finest in rings, bracelets, earrings, necklaces and much more since 1982. They specialize in custom design. So if you're looking for that right gift, especially during the holidays, Head to raw Jewelers on Barrington Road in Hoffman Estates, and they're on the web at rauljewelers.com. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, purveyors of the finest meats. Look for them at polinamarket.com and by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dogs and a landmark institution since 1893. They're located at viennabeef.com. This week, we feature part two of the best of season two, and we lead off with one of the most well-known and outspoken journalists on both sides of the fence. We're talking about Keith Olbermann, a hit at ESPN and MSNBC. But did you know his career could have taken a very different path? One right here in the Windy City? How about I almost quit
2: SportsCenter in 1996 to go become a drive-time radio host in Chicago, Illinois? How about that? We'll start with that one.
1: Yeah, well, how did that happen? So
2: in, in 96, which might have actually been the apex of my uh, and, and ESPN's mutual unhappiness with each other and our success with each other, uh, at that point, for some reason, and I can't been able to find this out in any of my records or diaries or anything else, but a fellow named Doug Stern, who was the, who was the general manager of WMVP, um, and he, I believe he called my agent, having said, you know, the guy we'd really like to have do our afternoon drive time here, as we reconceptualize this radio station, is somebody like Keith Olbermann. So why don't we start with Keith Olbermann and see if he's interested? and it was an intriguing idea because i really wasn't i mean i just wasn't happy for a variety of reasons at at espn at that point and it got much more interesting when when he said when we had a brief phone conversation and he said uh so what we're looking to do for the first year and there will be all sorts of bonuses and things additionally based on ratings and we're in last place there are 31 stations and we're 31st so you can get most of these bonuses he said uh we're starting with, as this is the as the annual salary and the figure he quoted George was twice what they were paying me to host SportsCenter every night. You're kidding! No, no, no. SportsCenter was not a lucrative uh, thing to do then. Not really. Now it's a lot better now than it was then. But I made like three times as much at ESPN in my last incarnation there, where I basically worked two, three days a week than I did at the height of sports center in the nineties. It just, it didn't pay because they were, you know, they had it, there was a buyer's market. So once he said this, it was like, well, I've always heard great things about Chicago and I've never, never been there. And at least I'll go out and see what's going to happen. And so I get out and, and go on this trip. And first off, Doug Stern meets me at the airport, which made a good impression and picks me up and takes me to the Drake and sets me up at the Drake hotel and we go out, and we have some steaks. and he's talking about the radio station and they, they, they want a Don Imus kind of show, but instead of b- b- being, you know, politics and life, it would be sports and life. And they give me all sorts of latitude. And if, if, if I wanted to do a TV sports cast, a local one, I could do that too during the radio show and make a lot more money. So now we're talking about this might the this thing might've been worth four or five times uh, maybe more than that, what ESPN was, te- was, was uh, paying me. And my contract was coming up at the end of 97 anyway, so we were at, almost at the end of it at ESPN. And the more he took me around and the more he assigned two people to take me around in particular, the more I liked Chicago. And the more this idea of doing a long, like three-hour drive-time radio show every day that would lead into White Sox games uh, r- appealed to me. And we, uh, he put these two crazy guys, Spike and Harry, uh, <laughs> who you 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 should identify them to your to your audience. I know uh, who they are. <laughs> well, you know who they are, but I don't know who your audience does. But they they were they were like the primary hosts there, and these guys treated me like I was the Messiah. They were like. Oh, my God, you'll save us. We won't be in last place anymore. <laughs> and, it was, and, and, and Spike said, and, and the, uh, just summarize these two guys. Harry is super hyper, uh, and Spike is just sort of deadpan. And Spike went, so you're staying at the Drake? I said, yes, it's a great hotel. My sister's <laughs> getting married at the Drake. I said, that's great. Saturday, you want to go? I said, what? He said, yeah, I'm inviting you to my sister's wedding Saturday. Guy was staying like the, the three or four days and then the weekend. So yeah, we could just. Yeah. I said, "Well, I look kind of funny there with going to your sister's wedding when I've never met your sister." And he goes, "Well, uh, I, we can get you a date." <laughs> and he said, so I went to his sister's wedding and met her and had a date and met her. Uh, and this is uh, this was just the beginning of the hospitality. And you know, I mean, th- th- there are very few places in America that are actually different than other places in America. And I I don't mean politically, and I don't mean accents, and I don't mean food. I mean in terms of overall attitude. And I'd really never seen this before. To some degree, you see it in, in places in the Midwest, but I'd never experienced it where not only was the baseline behavior of people so fundamentally different in Chicago, but they were also adding to it by trying to sell me on moving to their community. And the attitude was, you're from out of town? Have a beer. And that was it. Everywhere I went, somebody was giving me something, a free meal, a beer. And I, they take me to bowls practice. And and Dennis Rodman comes over and goes, what are you doing here, man? You already have a job. What are you doing here? You're trying to get another job, aren't you? What are you doing? we go and work for one of the stations here. And I went, will you shut up? And, <laughs> and, and so and I go to the White Sox game and they introduce me to everybody from the White Sox and then sit me in one of the nice seats and I'm visiting with And it just went on and on and on and the more we talked about how this was going to go, the more I liked it. It was like very challenging, very lucrative. I looked into buying condos. It's like, wait, the cost of living in Chicago is only like 5% bigger than the cost of living in Bristol, Connecticut. Are you kidding me? And finally, Friday night, we were going to go to dinner. The general manager Stern and I were going to dinner and at five o'clock in the afternoon, I'm like, I'm going to tell them, let's try this. Let me see if I can get ESPN to let me go early. I think they probably will. Let's do it. And as I'm getting dressed for dinner, the phone rings and he says, "Uh, change in plans. And I said, what's that? He goes, well, the owners of the station came back from the corporate meetings and they've decided that being in 31st place. It'd be much easier and much cheaper if they simply took the station off the air rather than hired you for this enormous amount of money. Oh,
1: my goodness.
2: So everybody that you're going to go to that celebratory dinner with tonight is fired, but they don't know that yet. And I'm leaving for San Francisco for my new job at 8.30 p.m. So I'm sorry about the sudden notice, but I really couldn't tell you the whole thing. Bye. So I'm I'm already supposed to go to dinner and then meet uh all the all these got harry and spike and every other host at that station i'm supposed to meet them at we're supposed to start at stanley's was the name of the place and i'm and i'm like i know that all of these people have a death sentence that they don't they think everything has gone well they think i'm moving here i'm leaving on a plane in you know right after spike's sister's wedding <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if they're canceling the wedding now too I walk into Stanley's and it's dollar beer night and it's all guys and they all recognize me from sports center at the same moment and they all take one half step toward me. So it's like if they take a full step toward me they would have crushed me. <laughs> now it's 200 guys it's I'm like I'm I have to pretend to be happy. I have never gotten so drunk in my life before or since by like a 50% I got so drunk I had to write out where I was going at the end of the evening so the cab driver could understand me because I couldn't tell any of these people that I was there were all going to be they were So
1: they didn't know.
2: They didn't know and I it was my job not to tell them that night or the next night.
1: So oh. you were you were prepared in yep. essence to become a Chicagoan. Yes. They had you set up for a date at the wedding, which means you know they got married and had kids. What a different
2: life this would have been. I I have I've contemplated it many times. There there's only three places that I go on my travels and have gone in the last 40 years where I, I I look around a corner as I'm walking through Boston, LA, and Chicago, where I'm walking in the street, I figure, what happens if I turn this corner and another version of me is walking in the opposite direction, the one who stayed here. The number of things in one's life that, that are obviously pivotal uh, as they happen, but then become monumentally so in retrospect. I mean, I, my, I don't think I would have had a news career. I mean, conceivable that I would have found a different way to go into that whole line of thing in news and, and politics, but that would f- would pre- precluded my going to NBC and MSNBC in 1997.
1: Listen up, OEMs, first impressions are lasting ones. Dynamic Manufacturing's impressive complex in Hillside, Illinois includes nearly a million square feet of operating space. I had a chance to view some of it and I was overwhelmed by the organization, technology and dedicated workforce. Dynamic Manufacturing provides solutions for engineering, manufacturing, machining, and logistics, and they can re-energize your electric and energy storage systems. They can machine any project, no matter the size. And when it comes to motorsports, they're your trusted partner for chasing podiums with their custom torque converters. Dynamic Manufacturing is your one-stop for all your remanufacturing needs, and they can't wait to engineer a custom solution for getting maximum value from experienced parts. Dynamic Manufacturing where there's nothing they can't do. Dan Plezek is one of the most entertaining personalities on the MLB network. His passion for the game and great sense of humor have led to some hilarious moments. But did you know he never started a major league game during his 18 year career in the major leagues?
3: George, I never pitched a game of relief in the minor leagues in, in all of my years. I made the team in 1986 with Milwaukee. George Bamberger was the manager. I made the team as the fifth starter. We started the month of April and on opening day, we opened up my first day in the big leagues. I'll never forget it. We opened up against the White Sox. And I remember because Mike Ditka threw out the first pitch because the Bears had just won the Super Bowl in January. (laughs) Um, They tell me that they're going to keep me in the bullpen for the first two weeks because we had every off day. Every Tuesday was every Monday was a day off. So we played Monday in Old Comiskey. We're off Tuesday. Played Wednesday and Thursday in Comiskey. Went to New York Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I warmed up on opening day. Teddy Hager was the winning pitcher. We were up by quite a few runs. I got up to get up to maybe pitch. Nervous as hell, didn't get in. Day off on Tuesday, didn't pitch Wednesday or Thursday. We went to New York on Friday. Played the Yankees on Friday night. I got in my first big league game. Bases loaded, one out, seventh inning, struck out Mike Pagliarulo. Went home five days later in the home opener. I pitched four scoreless innings. Sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. 12 up, 12 down against the Yankees. We scored two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning and won the game. After the game, I pitched four innings in relief. I walk in after the game. I'm feeling good about myself. Like, okay, I'm stretched out now. George Bamberger calls me in the office and he sits me down. And he says, kid, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to be our Dave Raghetti. We're going to keep you in the bullpen. I want you to forget about that changeup. I want you to use fastball slider. We're going to keep you in the bullpen the rest of the year. I'm going to take care of you. I won't pitch you two, three days in a row. And I remember George walking out of that office, devastated. I didn't want to be a reliever. Nobody did then. And I will say this, George Bamberger made my career. He took care of me my rookie year. Didn't overwork me, didn't abuse me. And if it weren't for George Bamberger, I would have never played 18 years because there is no way in hell I would have lasted 18 years being a starting pitcher. It was the best thing, even though I thought it was the worst thing at the time. In April of 1986, I was disappointed. By May 1st, I was glad. A year later, I was in my first of three All-Star games. From the Milwaukee Brewers, pitcher Dan Plisak. I'm going to tell you something. I would have played one All-Star game if I was a starter. I was very lucky.
1: So was there one particular game you remember as a reliever that just simply stands out? Yeah. Good and bad? You want you want one of these? I'll take them both. I'll give you
3: bad first. 1989, I was with Milwaukee. We were a game out of the uh, – you know, there was no wild card in 1989. You either won the division or you were going home. We were in Baltimore playing the Orioles, and we were a game and a half out of first place with about – maybe five days left in the season. We have a one-run lead going into the ninth inning against the Orioles. Look up on the scoreboard. The Blue Jays were in first place. They had lost. So if we win this game, we're going to be a half a game out of first with a week to go. I came into a game, got the first two guys out of the inning. I walked the guy with two outs and Mickey Tettleton came up. I threw a one-two hanging slider to Mickey Tettleton that he hit at about 590 feet. <laughs> right over the top of the fair pole or foul pole, whatever you want to call it. And I'm I'm thinking, I'm going, please go foul. Please go foul. Please go foul. Couldn't tell if it was fair or foul. Derwood Merrill was the home plate umpire. He comes outside at first, but comes up, jumps outside of home plate, and he yells, foul, it's foul. And I'm like, took a deep breath because I wasn't sure, George, if it was fair or foul. If he'd have called it fair, I... I couldn't even complain. It was so high over the over the foul pole that you couldn't tell if it was or wasn't. So I was like, "Whoo! did I dodge a bullet? Next pitch, George threw another slider. He had about 450 feet in the right center field gap for a home run <laughs> to win the game. I felt like I dodged a bullet. And then like literally 30 seconds later, I threw up a two-run home run. We lose the game. We end up losing the East. I'm not saying we would have won the East. But if we were half a game back with a week to go, we'd have put more pressure on the Blue Jays. That's one I'll never forget. good one that I'll never forget, 1988 All-Star game. Um, When you play for Milwaukee, you're not on the game of the week on NBC. That was a big thing. Like, if you were the NBC game of the week, you were big, like Tony Kubek, Bob Costas. So, 1988, I make the All-Star team. And we're playing three days against the Minnesota Twins, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, before the All-Star break. I come in and get three saves Friday, Saturday, Sunday against the Minnesota twins. And the only reason I remember this, I had to fly in a charter with the twins because Tom Kelly was the manager because the twins won the world series in 87. So the manager of the, you know, the 87 team is the manager of the all-star team. So Tom Kelly and his coaching staff, I go on the twins charter, Tom Kelly, the coaches, Gary Gaetti, Kirby Puckett, Frank Viola, we're all on a plane. I walk on a plane. I just say, three games, Paul Mauer and I walk onto the twins charter to go to Cincinnati and they're giving it a hard time. Boo and they, you're on the wrong plane. What are you guys doing here? So we have a, we have a meeting the day of the all-star game. Tom Kelly comes up to me. He says, listen, I know you're having a monster season, but he said, in all honesty, man, I'm going to let, I think I'm going to give the ball to Eck in the ninth. I said, Hey, I had no problems. You can, that that's great. So he goes, but I just want you to know, Daryl Strawberry's your guy. So if he's in, so be ready for the seventh inning on. Strawberries in, he's your guy. I'm like, okay. So George, I'm warming up in the eighth inning. Two outs, strawberries on deck circle. Ground ball hit to Don Manley, who doesn't boot it. He never boots the ball, right? Willie McGee, ground ball, Don Manley on the turf in Cincinnati at Old Riverfront. Hits off the heel of his glove and bounces away. I come in the game to get Daryl Strawberry. All Tom Kelly told me when he handed me the ball was listen, like I told you in the meeting. He's a real good low ball hitter. Just throw a buck, just elevate your fastball, nothing but heaters at the belt. You'll blow him away. I'm like, okay, you got it, Tom. George, the first two pitches were where I wasn't supposed to throw them knee high, right down the middle where Strawberry likes him. He swifts strike one, whiffs strike two. And the next one, I'm thinking, I want to throw this one like neck high, as hard as I could throw it. And I think it was the hardest ball I threw in my 18 years. Threw a 97 mile an hour fastball at his chest. He swung at it, and missed. And Strawberry is gone. So Plesac strikes him out, and we go to the ninth. With the American League still out in front. And I remember walking off the field, thinking, like, I made it, man. I arrived. Like, you know that that's at the time when, when in 1988, when the All Star game was on, people were watching, and so that was like. That was my coming out party, that, that strikeout of Daryl Strawberry. And then the game's over. We're staying at the Weston in Cincinnati, the American League team, right? So uh, my go-to was a club sandwich. So I order a club sandwich. and comes with a club sandwich and another knock on the door. Here's your dessert. And I'm like, I didn't order dessert. They said it's on the house. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I eat my club sandwich, George, my French fries. And I open it up, and it's a piece of strawberry shortcake. <laughs> and they wrote on it, strawberry dessert.
1: Congrats. <laughs> who doesn't love jewelry who wouldn't love raw jewelers family owned and operated for nearly 40 years raw jewelers offers the very best in fine jewelry and engagement rings including mined and lab-grown diamonds and they utilize the latest technology and offer jewelry repair on the premises Rawl Jewelers has a glittering array of rings, necklaces, earrings, bracelets, and watches, and offers custom-designed jewelry on the premises. And if you have the most specific questions, Rawl Jewelers has four graduate gemologists on staff. With over 200 years of combined experience and expertise, it's no wonder Rawl Jewelers is one of the leading shops of its kind. This is where my wife and I got our wedding bands many years ago, and it's safe to say, when you walk in as a customer, You're gonna leave as a friend. Rawl Jewelers is located at 3001 Barrington Road in Hoffman Estates, right off I-90 West. Rawl Jewelers, when only the very best will do. Dan Bellino is a veteran umpire who hails from suburban Chicago, and while he's made his mark during a thus far ten-year career, he's also keenly aware of the state of instant replay.
4: For me, the 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 most career-defining play that I've had was actually a positive it was a play in Washington in which it was a tricky ruling. And, you know, a lot of individuals would say that when I made that call, it kind of, it was my announcement to, to other umpires in major league level that, hey, I can do this job. And, you know, I want to do this job because it was a tricky play and I was fortunate enough to see it and fortunate enough to call it and everything just worked out perfectly. So it, it, I've been fortunate on the other side of the coin that, yes, it was career-defining at the time, but obviously there's a lot more baseball to be played.
1: You know, instant replay has its ups and its downs, and I think fans and players, Dan, hate those calls on the bases where a player was called out because his hand or foot may have been a fraction off the base. Is this something umpires would like to see eliminated? Well,
4: I obviously can't speak for all umpires. I, I will say that getting overturned on a call like that does not sting as much as one that you miss by a foot and a half.
3: Oh, I think Help was off the bag at first, but he gets the benefit of the call. Wait a minute, he wasn't even close to being on the bag. Helton, he came with foot th- off the
0: bag and he still gets the out call. Don Mattingly is incensed. He came off the base because he couldn't make the play.
4: I think it would be a really cool experiment if we were to try to do like a give the managers five challenges per game, but they have to challenge with what they see, not go, not call somebody that's looking at it on TV. You know, it, it would be an interesting experiment. I'm not advocating that it would be better for baseball, but it would be interesting because those types of plays that you're talking about wouldn't even be challenged.
1: Right. Because they have a chance to look at it. We've always wondered why either you're going to do it or you're not. Well, it's not that it's not that easy. They, they, they'll almost
4: always hold you up on an important play, on a scoring play. They'll hold you up just to see if there is the opportunity to, uh, to get an overturn. Uh, they just, they're competing. And, and, and I respect the fact they're competing. We all do. This is one aspect that I think we, we truly have missed out on. And I miss it personally, is when there would be a close play at the plate as a plate umpire, there used to be just an absolute roar when you would call a guy safer out, depending on if it went for or against a home team or if it was a game ending play, for example, just an absolute roar. And that decibel level of that roar, you just don't really hear it anymore because what happens is you get the initial cheering, but then everybody knows, okay, they got to go to replay. And so you just don't get fans are smart. They are engaged and they're smart enough to know, okay, I like the call but it may not stand. So, you know, a lot of times managers, especially at the end of the game, when they have nothing to lose, they'll just challenge it to challenge it mm-hmm. just because they have nothing to lose. So, all right, let's go to the headset and, and confirm that the call was right, which, you know, in the, on the positive side, we don't end a game on a missed call. And, and that's from an umpire standpoint. We love that. We love that we don't end the game on a missed
1: call. This takes me to my next question because I've got to believe the mere mention of robots might get umpires to how shall we best put this argue the call. Tell me a story I don't know whether you like the idea and whether we're going to see one behind home plate anytime in the near future.
4: I'm obviously biased uh, in this regard. If if you can show me that the technology is better, I would entertain the, the prospect. And, and frankly, we have that. Uh, we have the the electronic aspect and we do have that set up now where we're looking at the, um, we're looking at the, the variances and the trends that umpires have. But, you know, when we're talking about robots behind the plate, I just don't, I, I can't envision it. This is Rick White,
1: the commissioner of the Eastern League.
0: TrackMan itself uses a Doppler radar system where they have three lasers fixed on a point, in this case, its home plate. As a ball crosses the plate, that communication then transmits to the umpire on the field where he hears the word strike or the word ball, and then he signals that. It delivers a standardized
4: product. I can't envision it being a positive. I can't envision it being something that we... Uh, that we as fans would want to see uh, in, in the game because the game isn't perfect, which ultimately is not something that you want to do. Um, the game isn't perfect. So you want to kind of have that imperfection out there because sometimes players, they gain advantages from being on, uh, you know, on the right side of, 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 a, of a missed pitch or the wrong side of a missed pitch. It can motivate them. So I, I think that that's what makes it great. And also George, if you just, take it down to the level of, of college and high school and little league. You want the game at the big league level to mirror those games as much as possible. And so as a father of, of three boys playing baseball, do I want to tell them that, that you're through college, you're going to be at a point where, where it's not going to be electronic and then you have to adapt. I I think that's just a, a pretty big leap to make. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that it would be a positive, but I could be wrong. Don't misunderstand it. There's a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me that if they think that this is better for the game and, and they can show it, I would absolutely entertain it.
1: The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's ofman and just one F on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you thought Ron Sando bled cubby blue. Ron Coomer has the experience to prove it. The veteran sidekick to longtime radio voice Pat Hughes remembers one trip he made to Wrigley Field as a kid.
5: We would go to Wrigley Field. My dad would take me um, as a little guy. Now you're talking about five, six, seven years old. And we would try to get there as early as we could. And, you know, for five minutes, I would get a chance to hawk fly balls in left field. But my dad always wanted to get into the ballpark. And I did too, but I, I wanted to get a hot dog and see Wrigley. I don't know if he just wanted to get a cold beer, hot dog and go to Wrigley. That all could be yes to all of it. And that's all fine by me. But as a, as a young kid, um, Bruce Souter's rookie year, we get to the ballpark. Um, and my deal was I would shoot right up in from the concourse, right onto the field or by the field where you can see it. And you'd see that bright green and the scoreboard and the green grass and the Ivy and all that. And, and I just was amazed at the way the field looked, I just, it just, it was infectious to me. And every time I saw it, I became a bigger and bigger fan. And then as, as you know, you, you do that a few times, then you want to meet the players. Well, we had tickets one time down by the Cubs bullpen. It was Bruce Suter's rookie year and I go down to the bullpen and I got my glove, right? My dad had bought me this uh, Wilson A2000, which was the cool glove to have uh, for a young kid. And I'm telling you, probably two-thirds of the big league players were using that glove. So I go down to the bullpen and and I'm hanging out and I'm talking before the game to Bruce Suter. And, and I'm bothering him, but you know what? I, I'm seven years old. I didn't know. And finally, Bruce Suter comes up to me, and I, will, I want him to sign my glove. And he grabs my glove, and he looks at it. And he goes, here, take a look at mine. We had the exact same <laughs> glove. How about that? Exactly. Broken in the same everything, Terny. So, you know, so you're like, oh, this is really cool. Well, my dad had told me when he brought that glove home. Now, my dad was a truck driver in the inner city. And buying that Wilson eight 2000 it took a lot for our family to get that glove for me. So he made he told me, if you lose this glove or leave it outside in the rain or ruin this glove, you're going to play shortstop in Little League barehanded. And he meant it. And I did not question my father like that at all. So I'm standing there right at the brick wall, Bruce Suter's right on the other side, and we're We've exchanged gloves and I'm holding it. I got, he gave me a baseball and I'm throwing it in there, you know, and it's all cool. And I'm, you know, my dad's just proud as all hell because we got the same glove and you're, I'm like an eight year old and, and uh, so all is great. Right. And uh, then all of a sudden Bruce Suter, you know, he starts to hand it back. He goes, Hey, why don't we trade gloves? And I grabbed my glove out of his hand and I go, no way. That's my glove. And my dad, <laughs> out of nowhere, right, wham, I get hit in the shoulder, and I get knocked. And he's like, give him the glove. I go, this is my glove. I go, no, no, <laughs> And Bruce Suter's eyes got like this big. He got the old beetle-deuce-looking eyes, and he's like, this little eight-year-old kid just wouldn't trade gloves with me. And, and I didn't. And that whole day, my dad just kept shaking his head at me like, what the hell's wrong with you, kid? Did I not raise you right? And the whole day and I just, I was adamant and I kept the glove and I, you know, and that's just the way it was. And I, I like we, your
1: spunk. It's like, Hey, you know, I'd love to trade with, this is my, leave it alone. That's my glove. I play <laughs> shortstop with that. I broke that glove in and you know,
5: it, it just, it's one of those things, you know? And so years and years later, as I'm playing now for the Chicago Cubs, in one, you know, it, we go through all this and, um, who comes to the ballpark? Bruce Souter, right? Big beard, you know? And, and so I got to introduce myself. I go, how you doing, Bruce? Ron Coomer. Yeah. 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 I go, we met before. He goes, really? I go, yeah, I was eight years old or seven. I think I was eight years old. And uh, I go, yeah, you were in the bullpen. And we had the same glove, the A 2000 XL with the closed pocket. And we were going to trade. And, you offered to trade gloves with me. And I said, no, and my dad never let me forgive it, forget it for the rest of my life until he passed. And that was just one of those stories he would tell about me if we were out somewhere. And he just started laughing. He goes, you probably did good. I wasn't that good a fielder anyway, but it was just so funny to have this deal happen when I was a little kid to get back to Wrigley field as a player. And then to meet Bruce Souter. I thought that was really cool. And, It's one of those things when I met him, I was just like, this guy's not going to believe this.
1: Ever been to the Polina Market? If not, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and much more since 1949. Their steaks are top of the line, but there's also chicken, fish, and those mouthwatering sausages. And you might spend hours just perusing their frozen food section, all made fresh. And now the expanded Polina Market offers beer, wine, and sandwiches. It's become a one-stop shop, making your in-store experience well worth your time. And you can still order online. I've been shopping here since 1984. Paulina Market is simply the best and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at paulinamarket.com. No one — I mean, no one — does hot dogs better than Vienna beef. That's because they have been doing them since 1893. Imagine biting into a delicious all-beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt, and just try that on one of their Polish sausages. Vienna products are available everywhere from your supermarkets, restaurants, the ballparks, and zoos, just to mention a few, and you can purchase them online at viennabeef.com. And look for their farm acres, chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. Chip Carey spent seven wonderful yet somewhat bumpy years as the Cubs' television voice, and in his very first season in 1998, something very special happened at Wrigley Field, and Carey was behind the mic for it. Uh, it was great,
6: and it was done in the age you know, before Internet, before the advanced metric stats, before instant uh, information, uh, at the fingertips to find out who had the strikeout records, all that kind of stuff. Um it was, If I remember, it was kind of a misty, gray, typical early May day in Chicago. You know, sometimes you get those beautiful uh, early summer uh, eve-type games, and this was just kind of a dreary, gray, kind of yucky day. Shane Reynolds, I think, pitched for the Astros, and he struck out 11 guys. He pitched great, too, for Houston. Um, but what Steve and I noticed bar- right away was that Kerry had an unbelievable breaking ball. He had two of them, and the Astros weren- weren't just missing by inches. They were missing the ball by a foot. And it was ridiculous, um, the, the kind of stuff he had. And we'd heard all about Kerry Wood, number one pitching prospect, you know, a guy that had a big arm but didn't have a lot of control. And the Cubs were hoping to bring him along slowly and see what he could do. Uh, But as I said earlier, that was really kind of Steve's and my national coming out party because I had probably 50, 60 messages when that game was over of people that were out doing the lawn or gardening or running errands. And they came back and they flipped the game on because it was the only game on in the afternoon and they saw Kerry Wood has 15 strikeouts through six innings. They're like, what? What the hell's going on? And, uh, you know, that last inning. We knew that it was set up for history. We knew that if he struck out the side, he would get to 21 and have the all-time record. But I also knew that Craig Biggio was up, and he'd struck out earlier in the game, and there was no way that Biggio was going to get to two strikes. So he strikes out the first guy. Biggio comes up, and I think he swings to the first or second pitch. You could hear this audible groan in the ballpark because they knew once he grounded out, there was no way that Kerry could get to 21 uh, strikeouts. And then the last hitter came up, and Sandy Martinez is behind the plate. And, uh, you know, just saw him put the two down, slider. I said, here comes the hook. And Kerry threw a perfect breaking ball, slider, strike three, 20 strikeouts, and Bedlam began.
4: One and two. Well, one more curveball, and that should be about it because Derek Bell isn't even coming close. Come on, number 20. Here comes the hook.
6: Um, that's when guys who sit in the chair that I sit in uh, earn their money and that is to try to build the drama try to put it in context which we did Uh, and then when the moment comes say what you got to say and then shut up and try to get out of the way Uh, You're right. Statistically speaking, it is the most dominant pitching performance ever made. Mm -hmm. Uh, If Kevin Horry had made that play at third base, it would have been a 20 strikeout no hitter, which would be absolutely ridiculous as if his performance wasn't ridiculous enough. Uh, But I remember feverishly looking through the record books, making sure we had the names and numbers right and how many strikeouts he needed and when he broke the Cubs record and then the National League record and then tied the Major League record. All of this being done by a 20-year-old kid out of Texas making his fourth or fifth start. Me in my fourth or fifth week There was just kind of a personal uh, professional symmetry that had to do with the Kerry Wood game. And uh, obviously it's a moment the Cubs fans won't forget and neither
1: will I. There's really no way to know what's about to come next after Kerry Wood's effort. There's a home run duel, born more than likely from performance enhancing drugs, yet becomes intoxicating all the way through. And you're chronicling this chase between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. Many stories to tell here, Chip, the whole story has been told so many times it just bears
6: repeating because it 's so great When you think of that home run chase, you think you have to think of it on so many different levels uh let 's think back to where baseball was from the strike in ninety four It was a need of something to recapture people 's imaginations and knowing what we know now, maybe we would think differently or would have thought differently of what happened in thousand nine hundred and ninety eight but we didn 't have uh, the the, the uh, you know Nostradamus like qualities that Steve Stone had to know then what we know now. But that said, you needed something to have people fall in love with the game again. People were sick and tired of the money fights. They were tired of millionaires and billionaires fighting over billions of dollars, just like they are now. Uh, you had the great rivalry between St. Louis and Chicago, uh, which has always been one of the greatest rivalries, if not the greatest rivalry in baseball, simply because of the geographic area it covers. It goes from the Rocky Mountains all the way to the Appalachians and to Canada North into the Gulf of Mexico South. Then you have this all-American uh, California slugger, rookie of the year, Mark McGuire, uh, who grew up in you know in privileged uh, 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 upbringing in, 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 uh, the, on the West Coast. And then you have Sammy Sosa, who shined shoes and sold oranges to survive in the Dominican Republic and found a toe tap and found out how to hit at the major league level with the, the help of Jeff Pentland uh, battling it out as well. So Sosa the batter, he's one for two and he sends a rocket, deep toward left. Back goes Mabry, at the track. those different levels on a day-to-day basis Sosa would hit two in the afternoon Maguire would hit two at night and going into St. Louis and watching that chase come down to Mark Maguire having a chance to homer with the Cubs I mean you talk about perfect symmetry Uh, that's that's really the way the baseball gods would have had to draw it up Uh, and the story that you may not know is you know look I grew up in St. Louis was a huge Cardinal fan my grandfather did the Cardinals for 25 years uh, hell, in St. Louis, when you're born, you know the 64 Cardinals starting lineup before you know your ABCs. Um, to be there for that moment, uh, to watch McGuire hit the home run, to watch one of the uh, grounds crew members pick up a baseball, again, at a time where everybody was wondering who was going to catch and how much it was going to be worth, uh, for this kid to retrieve the ball and hand it to McGuire at home plate, to have Sammy Sosa greet McGuire, uh, the Maris family there, to see that sea of red in St. Louis, even the Cubs fans who were there standing and applauding, was remarkable, but for me personally, the moment that really was poignant and still touches me to this day was looking over to my left. Jack Buck, uh, who was my childhood broadcasting idol in St. Louis, was there and was broadcasting the game with the Cardinals. He had on his red Cardinal Hall of Fame jacket, which he wore for the big moments. He calls the home run, McGuire rounds the bases, the fireworks go off, and you know we've said what we've had to say, and we're totally silent on, on TV on our WGN side. But as I look over at Jack Buck, who knew Roger Maris, who'd been in baseball since the 40s, who'd seen everything that you could possibly see in the game, he sees McGuire rounding the bases and hugging his son Matthew at home plate with tears running down his
2: eyes. Here it comes to McGuire. Swing! Look at there! Look at there! Look at there! McGuire's number 61!
5: McGuire's flight 61 headed for Planet Maris!
6: That, that got me, and it still gets me when I think about that. And, and, you know, for those of us who work in the business and can get cynical about what guys do and what they should do and how much they make and all the, the, the labor fights and all the stupid stuff we have to deal with, there's still a love affair with this sport that people who work behind the Micron Telecast was and the craft of understanding just how much Cub baseball meant to people around the country. Because, again, coming from where I came from, I had no idea. And until you're in it, until you're immersed in it, you have no, there's no possible way you can understand the breadth and depth of it. But uh, now that I'm away from it, I still uh, marvel at it. And uh, the old saying, once a cub, always a cub, really rings true.
1: My thanks to Keith Overman, Dan Plisak, Dan Bellino, Ron Coomer and Chip Carey for those wonderful highlights. And to our generous sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing, where there's nothing they can't do. And Rawl Jewelers, top jewelers in the Northwest suburbs on Barrington Road and Hoffman Estates. Come in as a customer, leave as a friend. Also, the Polina Market, purveyors of the finest meats and much more, and by the Vienna Beef Company, home of Chicago's hot dog and an institution since 1893. Tune in next week for another fascinating episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman. And that's all she wrote.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.